The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I really like, and I'm also really committed to, teaching the Bible verse by verse. Um, I just believe that Yahweh gave the Scriptures in book form. It wasn't like, you know, a fortune cookie where you get a little verse here and there, you know, and whatever you need. He, he wrote them in book form, and I think that's how we should study them, in their context. You know, not just go through and pick out our favorite topics and, you know, hit on our topics. You know, the church today talks a lot about the Bible, but there isn't a lot of studying of the Bible. There's not a lot of verse-by-verse exposition going on. And as a result, we know a lot of Bible stories, but we don't know much theology. Now, one thing I really like about verse-by-verse teaching is I don't have to spend any time trying to figure out what to teach on. I mean, when you teach a a topical message, it's like you're trying to figure out what should I teach on, and you're looking for different topics. And No, I don't have to waste any time doing that. I know... The next verses, my only decision is how many verses do I want to cover, but you just jump right in it. But the thing with teaching verse by verse, it's not always comfortable. Because at times you've got to deal with verses you would never deal with, you know, if you weren't going verse by verse. And today is one of those times. Alright? These verses, particularly 12 through 14, have caused many believers to either question their faith or question the Bible. So I hope I'm able to bring some insight to these verses today and we'll have some understanding of what's going on here. But let me give you a warning, okay? (laughs) As we start this out, this is important. Here's here's your warning. I don't know of anyone who teaches what I'm about to teach regarding these verses. So please be a Berean, yeah, and study this out for yourself, all right? Now listen, this is is unusual because normally, you know, I'm not coming up with new ideas, but everything I've researched on this, you know, the answers are that people give in these verses are nebulous. And so I want to deal with what's here and we'll see what happens, okay? So that's the warning, all right? Now, I think, you know, we're currently looking at the farewell discourse, which is part of the upper room discourse, which is part of the book of glory. This is the second half of this gospel. This whole upper room discourse is the last night of the Lord's life. He's gathered His disciples together to teach them the things He wants them to know in His absence, because He's leaving. And the teaching we find here in this Gospel are not found anywhere else. They're only in John's Gospel. He only gives us this information. Now, at this point in our study, Judas has left to go to betray the Lord. So there's only believers in the room. And the Lord has a lot of things to say to these believers in light of His departure. When they finish, he finishes with a teaching, they get together and they sing a hymn. And then they go out into the Mount of Olives and Yeshua spends some time in prayer. Then he's arrested, he has a mock trial, and he's crucified. Sunday, he raises from the dead. So we're in the final hours of the Lord's earthly life. Now we saw at the end of chapter 13 that Yeshua has shocked the assembly of disciples there by telling them that one of them is going to betray them. And they have no clue. They've been together for three years. They have no clue that one of them is not a believer, that he's going to betray them. He also tells them Peter's going to deny him. And they don't like that. I mean, Peter's kind of, he's the oldest one. He's kind of the leader of the group. And then he tells them he's leaving them, and where he is going, they cannot now come. So after three years of being in constant face-to-face relationship with Yeshua, he is now telling him, I'm leaving you. This scares them to death. I mean, He has provided everything for them for the last three years. He provided food. Just makes, you got a couple of fish, we'll just multiply this, we'll have all the fish you need. He's provided shelter for them. At times, He's even paid their tax money. Go catch a fish, there'll be a coin in His mouth. Use that to pay the taxes. He's protected them from storms, remember? Lord, wake up! Don't you care? We're perishing! And He says, hush, be still, and boom, the water goes flat, the wind stops dead, and they're like, who is this man? They didn't get it. He's protected them from storms and from demons. 
He's taught them the truth about the kingdom of God. He answered every question they have about life and doctrine. And now he says, I'm leaving. So he tells them in chapter 14, verse 1, stop being troubled. Something that's already going on, so you need to stop that. He tells them, you believe in God, who you've never seen, He's invisible, so I'm leaving and I want you to believe in me, although you're not going to be able to see me anymore. So we ended our last study with verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. He says, if you had known me. Now, let me get technical for a second here. There's a manuscript variant here. The United Bible Society's Greek text supports the first class conditional sentence, as do the ancient manuscripts P66 and D. This would be translated like this, a first class condition. If you had known me, and you do, we would say since. Since you know me. All right? You would have known my Father, which you do. So that's a first class condition, but there's a variant that's the second class conditional sentence. And a second class is contrary to fact. And this is supported by several manuscripts too. A, B, C, D, B, K, L, X. They all support this reading. It would be translated like this. If you had known me, which you have not, then you would have known my Father, which you do not. Now the context seems to support the second class conditional here. But this is a difficult statement because they seem to have known Him. They've been with Him for three years. Is He saying they don't know Him? They knew that He was the Christ, the Son of God. They said that. They said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They knew He was the Holy One of God. They said that. You are the Holy One of God. They knew He was the Son of David. They said that. Who son is He? They said to Him, the Son of David. So what does He mean when He says, if you had known Me? Well, as we see in this fourth Gospel, it speaks of levels of belief. You know, we're not all at the same place in belief. You know, they believed some things. They had trusted Christ. But they were learning, they were growing. There's weak faith, there's strong faith, there's dead faith. So they were growing in their faith, but they, some things they really still didn't understand. And one of the things that they're not grasping here is the fact that Yeshua was Yahweh incarnate. They're not getting that yet. Yeshua is the one who Joshua called I love this verse, the Mighty One God, the Lord. The Mighty One God, Yahweh. This little phrase, the Mighty One God, the Lord, in the Hebrew is El Elohim Yahweh. And translated, it means this, Yahweh is the greatest God. Okay? That's Yeshua. He is Yahweh. And notice it says it twice. Now, Yeshua said at the end of verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through Me. Because He's one with the Father. To know Yeshua is to know Yahweh. To see Yeshua is to see Yahweh. In Yeshua, that which is impossible, man seeing God, actually happens. We see Him in Yeshua. Now the emphasis on verses 7-11 through 11, I think are pretty clear. Six times, Yeshua says virtually the same, thing, it's the same thing. He's just trying to drive this into our head. And if you go back and read chapter 5, this is kind of a, you know, a, a cap against verse 5. He's just saying the same thing He said in 5. He's saying He and the Father are so profoundly one that His presence is the presence of God the Father. He says in verse 7a, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. He says in 7b, From now on, You do know Him, and you've seen Him. They've seen Yahweh because they've seen Him. Verse 9, Philip asked to see the Father, and Yeshua says, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know Me? No, wait, He has to see the Father. And He goes, well, you know Me, you know the Father. Verse 9b says, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. That's a powerful statement there, people. 10a says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? And then in verse 11a, He says, I am in the Father and the Father is in Me. 
Now, people, this is what I've been saying since the beginning of this study, okay? Yeshua is Yahweh. He is Yahweh the Son. God is a trinity. We have Yahweh the Father, Yahweh the Son, Yahweh the Holy Spirit. He is the Son. And that is so clear in this Gospel. So clear. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Well, Philip's asking for a clear revelation of the Father that he said, that'll satisfy us if you just give us a revelation. He wanted Yeshua to give them a theophany like Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6.1 when he says, in the year Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh. They want to see Him. See, <clears throat> what they still don't get is that Yeshua's incarnation made the revelation of the Father more clearly and fully seen than it ever had been. He says in John 1.14, the Word, this is the Word that if you go back up to verse 1, it says the Word was God. And in 14 he said, the Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. God took on human form and walked among us. He, and so Philip says, well, show us the Father. You know, and Yeshua had to say, shake his head and say, that's exactly what I've been doing for the last three years. Is showing you the Father. You know, and I, thinking about this, Philip may have been saying, Lord, if we're to trust you as, you, as we do the invisible God, can you at least show, us to, show Him to us? I mean, you're leaving, can we see Him? Now, keep in mind the context here. Yeshua's preparing the disciples for ministering without His presence. They've been with Him the whole time. Now, He's leaving. I want you guys to carry on. And they probably didn't even understand that yet. They just thought everything's ending now. So the question of Philip in verse 8 provides the opportunity for Yeshua to explain further that the father-son relationship in verses 9 through 11. So he asked the question, which opens up the opportunity to give us a further understanding of this. Yeshua said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And Yeshua is lightly rebuking Philip here. You still don't know me? I mean, as highly as they thought of Yeshua, they didn't grasp yet that Yeshua is Yahweh making Himself known. They just didn't grasp that yet. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So anyone who's seen Yeshua has seen the Father Paul put that this way in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's speaking of Christ. He's the image. The word for image here is the Greek ekon, like our English icon. Ekon means that which resembles an object which it represents. Now, the word image can't be pressed here to mean a perfect representation. Because this same word is used in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, which says that man is made in the image, a cone, of God. So it's not referring to a perfect image. So this word, a cone, in and of itself doesn't mean a perfect representation. But let me ask you a question. Is Yeshua a perfect representation of Yahweh? Do this. Yes, He is. Okay? But we don't learn that from this text here in Colossians. But from other passages in the New Testament, what our text in Colossians is teaching is that Yeshua manifests the invisible Yahweh to us. As we look at other texts in the New Testament, we see that this is a perfect manifestation. For example, look at Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, speaking of Christ, and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the writer of Hebrews says that Christ is the exact imprint of his nature, Yahweh's nature. And the words exact imprint here are from the Greek word character. And it's used only here in the New Testament, but it's used in classical Greek to indicate a die or a stamp. You stamp something, what do you get? You get the exact imprint of that stamp. It's used of a mark or a seal. So used here, it means that Yeshua is the exact reproduction of Yahweh in human form. 
The word nature here is the Greek word hupostasis, which comes from hupo, meaning under, and histomy, meaning to stand. Thus it means that which stands under it. It could translate it essence. He is the very essence of Yahweh. Now, if you want to know the glory, if you want to know the moral beauty of the Father, read the Gospels. And in the person of Yeshua, you will see the beauty of the Father. You will see the streaming out, the effulgence, the glory of God. See, those who know Yeshua should have no more questions about Yahweh. All we need to do is look at Yeshua. Here, all the questions about Yahweh have been answered as we look at Him. Whoever has seen Yeshua has seen the Father. Now, I think this is a clear enough statement on the deity of Christ. Again, we see these all through this book. Yet, I run into Christians all the time and say, I don't know if I believe that Jesus is God. Well, then you got a problem. Because He says He is. And if you don't believe Him, then that's a problem. All right? Verse 10, do not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, that the words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. This mutual indwelling is a linguistic way of describing the complete unity between the Father and the Son. This is what Yeshua said in John 10.30. He says, I and the Father are one. And when he said this in chapter 10, this was the third time he said it. He said it in 5.17, he said it in 8.58. He is claiming unity and equality in the Godhead. Now some would say that Yeshua only means that He and the Father are united to you know, resolve and keep the sheep together. Well, that's chapter 10, and that's the context of 10. They are united in that. But this view doesn't take into account the Jews' reaction. When Yeshua said, I and the Father are one, the Jews said, They picked up stones again to stone Him. And Yeshua answered them, Now, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone Me? And the Jews answered Him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, the Jews understood you're claiming to be God. Christians don't get that today. The Jews got it very clearly. They get the point. They probably understood this as an allusion to Deuteronomy 6.4, a claim to divinity. He's claiming to be one with the Father in His divine essence. Now when Yeshua said, I and the Father are one, this does not obliterate all distinctions between the words and works of Yeshua that are given Him by the Father. So He didn't mean that He and the Father are the same person. This is not modalism, where it's one person and He takes on different characters. All right? Yeshua is one in substance with the Father as far as divine essence or nature is concerned, but the Father and the Son are distinct in persons. Augustine, back in the 3rd century, put it this way. He said, listen to the Son Himself. I and the Father are one. He did not say, I am the Father, or I and the Father are one person. But when He says, I and the Father are one, notice the two words, we are and one. For if they are one then they are not diverse. If, they, if we are, then there is both a Father and a Son. So he's saying just what I've been saying. Okay, so Augustine agrees with me. So that's a good, that's a good thing, right? Now the Jews asked Yeshua for a plain statement about His Messiahship. And He gave them far more. He gave them a claim that He and the Father are one. And the Jews understood this as a claim to deity, and they said, you being a man, Make yourself out to be God. These are the same guys that have watched him for years performing these miracles, and they're saying, you're a man. How many men have they seen do any of that stuff? They hadn't, but they just didn't get it. He says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now, Yeshua said this earlier, back in chapter 8, 28. So Yeshua said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak as the Father taught me. Now this is what we saw in chapter 5. And if you remember chapter 5, it's just so strong on the deity of Christ. The unity and the fa- of, the, of the Father and the Son. That's chapter 5 is all about. The Son does only what the Father does, he says in 5.19. The Son gives life, 
just as the Father gives life. 5.21 and 26. The Son does nothing by Himself but only what He hears the Father. Only what pleases the Father. 5.20 The Son comes in the name of the Father, not His own name. 5.43 And to me, the strongest verse here, 5.23, He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the Son is to receive the same honor, the same glory as the Father. Now, if you're familiar with the Tanakh, you know God says, my praise I will not give to another. So if He gives it to the Son, He's not giving it to another. They are one. Alright? They are one. Both Yeshua's words, the things He says, if you remember when He was talking to the Samaritans, the Samaritans said, we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So those are his words. They, they said, we've heard it. Both his words and his works are revelatory of who he is. But as the next verse indicates, the works have a greater confirming power than the words. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Alright? So, why does Yeshua rebuke Philip? Because the works that Yeshua has been doing should be evidence enough for Philip to realize that he's God. Alright? I mean, just some of the things Philip has seen walking on the water. I don't think he's seen a lot of men do that. Again, calming the wind. They're in the midst of a storm and they're afraid of their lives. Jews don't like water. Because water is the gateway to the underworld. Okay, so that's scary enough, and they're out in the middle of a storm, and they're just frightened. And all of a sudden, he says, peace, be still, and everything stops. And now it goes from a a violent storm to a piece of glass with no wind. And they're like, you know, and that's what their response is, what manner of man is this? I mean, yeah, what? that'd be a good question. What kind of guy is this who controls things like that? They see Him feed the multitude. They see Him healing the blind. People who blind from birth. They see Him raising the dead. And they knew that all those things were things that only God did. So, they had a clue the whole time. I mean, they're wandering around for three years watching this happen. And He says, believe on account of the works, Philip. Look at all you've seen. Alright, so verses 7-11 through 11 are pretty clear. At least in my mind. That Yeshua is Yahweh. This is another strong text on the deity of Yeshua. To deny the deity of Yeshua is to be damned. Now that's not me saying, I did say it, but I'm not getting it from me. The Lord said that. Okay, He said in John 8, 24, that unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Alright, now let's look at the next three verses here. That's where trouble comes in. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Let me ask you people, and be honest. Can you be honest? Huh? I know we're in church, so let's try to be honest, all right? Does anything about these verses trouble you? Any of these, anything about these verses cause you concern, make you scratch your head and say, what did he say? Let me say this. If they don't, you're not paying attention. And often we don't pay attention. You know what we do with the difficult verses? We keep reading. I didn't mean that. Just roll over and keep on going. Well, that's a problem with verse by verse. We've got to deal with these verses, okay? Let me ask you something. Do you believe in Yeshua? Have you trusted it? Okay, well, it says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. And the word works here has to do with miracles, miraculous events, signs in this book. So let me ask you something. Do you do the works that Yeshua did? Anybody? Anybody walked on water lately? Anybody raised the dead? Why not? I mean, does it say whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do? But yet, do you see that in your life? 
It also says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. So let me ask you this. Are you getting every prayer you ask answered? Does that promise that there? That's what it says. If you ask anything, you know, this is what blows my mind. Christians read this and they go, yeah, well, do you think about your prayer life? Are you really getting everything you ask answered? See, I read this and I say, well, I believe in Yeshua. I believe He's Yahweh. But I'm not doing the works that He did. And my prayers, for the most part, are not being answered. So how do we reconcile this? How do we deal with this? The text seems to say something that, I mean, we don't see. So there's a problem here, right? I see three possibilities as to why these things are not true in my life. Okay, my. First of all, first possibility, maybe I'm not a believer. Maybe I'm not a Christian because the text says, whoever believes in me. The text says, if you believe, you'll do these. So i got to say, well, maybe I'm confused about something here. I'm not a believer because I'm not doing these works. Secondly, maybe I'm not praying in Yeshua's name. Because the text says, whatever you ask in my name, this I'll do. So maybe I don't understand what that means, and I'm not praying right, and therefore I'm not getting answers. I'd like to give you a third possibility. Maybe I'm misunderstanding these promises. I'm kind of comfortable with that third one. I like the idea that there might be something here I'm not quite getting right that I need to do a little more research on because I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian. No, I'm absolutely sure. And I think I understand what it means to pray in His name. All right, when we come to verses like this, well, we have to do this all the time, but I believe we need to apply the hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. Okay? The Bible is not written to you. Now, some people have paroxysms when you say that. You know, what? It's all to me. No, it's not. You're not in there. Where does it say to the saints at Chesapeake, Virginia? Or the saints at Virginia Beach, Virginia? Where's that book? Are you a Philippian? No. You a Colossian? No. You a Roman? No. The Bible's not written to you. Listen, but it's written for you. But before you can say this means this to me, you've got to understand what did it mean to the people to whom it was written? Because it was written to real people and it had meaning to them. We seem to forget that. Most Christians read the Bible like it was the newspaper, like it showed up this morning. Oh, look, this is cool. Look what he says to me. you got an ancient book that you have to understand meant something to those people. It has to mean something first to its original audience. And then we take that and say, okay, now how do we apply this to ourselves? All right? Let me ask you, who is the Lord talking to here? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Jeff said me. You are not, Jeff, you are not in that upper room. Were you in that upper room? You are not in that upper room. Okay? Jeff is a lot older than he looks if he was in that upper room. Okay? But that's the thing. Okay, we know he's in the upper room. They're in the room. He's talking to his disciples. First century disciples. Listen, disciples who in just 53 days are going to experience Pentecost. They're going to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. They're going to be empowered with supernatural abilities in order to minister to the emerging church of God that's born on Pentecost. So it's my opinion. Got that? Opinion. Okay. you got to study this out. It's my opinion that these three verses apply to the first century disciples and only to the first century disciples. It's these disciples that our Lord will use to take the church from infancy to maturity during the transition period. It's during the transition period that believers had all the gifts of the Spirit. Spiritual gifts are not natural abilities or talents. Okay? Natural ability and talents are shared by all people alike. You know, if you've ever taken the spiritual gifts test, it tells you what your spiritual gift is. I can give that to a person who doesn't know God from the man in the moon, and they can, oh, they have the gift of teaching. And they might. They're a very qualified, gifted teacher. They teach at a school or they teach wherever. But they don't know the Lord. They don't have the gift of teaching. 
Listen, spiritual gifts were supernatural enablements. You get the word supernatural? Okay. People today say, you know, what is the most given gift in the church today, according to people? Helps. Helps. You get to set up chairs. You have the supernatural ability to set up chairs. Come on. You don't need a supernatural. You just need to not be lazy and help out, okay? It's not a supernatural ability, but the gifts were supernatural abilities given by the Holy Spirit, listen, for the purpose of taking this brand new church from infancy to maturity. And I believe the gifts only were functional during the transition period. Now, are the modern charismatics, the so-called gifts that they talk about, are they the same thing as we see in the New Testament? You go to a charismatic church and they're talking, all the gifts are still here, everybody's, you know, and the big gift in those churches is tongues. Everybody speaks in tongues, okay? The funny thing is, tongues was a, the, the ability to communicate in a language which you didn't know and they didn't know, or they knew you're speaking their language, but in, in the churches today, it's gibberish, okay? It's not a known human language. But are the gifts that we see or I don't see, but are the gifts that they claim to be operating in the church today the same as we see in the New Testament? I submit to you there's a definite lack of similarity. For example, are laymen who never walked healed so they jump up and leap and praise God? Have you ever seen that? I've been to a lot of healing services. I've seen a lot of people healed of low back pain and sinus headache can't see any of those. I've never seen an organic healing where a limb grew, or all of a sudden someone who was crippled jumps up and walks. Do missionaries blind their opponents today as Paul did? That would shut your opponents up quick, wouldn't it? Do preachers preach the word to a foreign speaking audience who hear what they're saying in their own language? No, preachers today, and what's funny, you got to get the hypocrisy here, Preachers who are big on the whole tongues thing, when they preach to a foreign audience, they use an interpreter. And I'm scratching my head saying, well, you got the gift of language, as you say, so speak to them in their language. They use an interpreter. I would never want to preach to an interpreter. Interpreter will say whatever he wants, right? Because he can, you don't understand him, you know, the people don't understand you. He can see, he just preaches his own message, you know. This guy's a real idiot, and the crowd's cheering, you think you're doing something, you know? How about this one? I love this one. Do church leaders today discern hypocrisy in their members and pronounce immediate death on them? How would you like if that one was operating today? (laughs) Do evangelists amaze entire city with miracles as Philip did? And are there entire multitudes healed by merely being in the shadow of a healer? We don't see these things. I mean, they try to you know, conjure up stuff, but you don't see these things. No, they're not there. So I think the position that all gifts are functioning today is wrong. And the, some people will divide the gifts. The supernatural gifts ended and the teaching gifts stayed on. Okay, All the gifts were supernatural abilities. Okay? And if I had the supernatural ability of teaching given me by the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't ever change my view. Because the Spirit's giving me the... It's supernatural. God's not changing His view, so why do I keep changing my view? See, the more I study, the more I change. Well, that's not supernatural. What happened in the early church is not happening today. Now, let me make a bold statement here. If we're going to correctly understand the New Testament, and that's our goal, we want to understand it, we must understand the transition period. You have to get this. This is the biggest mistake of people today who don't correctly interpret the New Testament. They miss this. But here's what I would say. Most Christians have never heard of the transition period and have no clue as to what it is. So let me try to explain it to you, all right? Here's my little diagram here, all right? The transition period began at Pentecost. It goes to AD 70, or Holocaust, the destruction of the Jewish temple, the Jewish war with Rome, the wiping out of Jerusalem. It was a 40-year period. It's called the Second Exodus. All right? 
Now, the green there is the Old Covenant. And you see, at Pentecost, the Old Covenant didn't end. It continued on into the 40 years. The blue is the New Covenant. The New Covenant began at Pentecost. And it goes past A.D. 70 and continues on. So this 40 years is the transition period. It's called the second exodus because in the first exodus, they came out of bondage to Egypt for 40 years. They wandered through the desert. This is the second exodus. But this is exodus into the new covenant. All right? I know that's kind of small, but that's the inauguration. The new covenant is inaugurated at Pentecost. And the old covenant is terminated at eighty seventy. And in between those red lines there is the transition period where both covenants existed together for 40 years. See, most people have the idea that Pentecost happened, that's the end of the Old Covenant, beginning of the New, and we just go on. No, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. These two covenants existed together for 40 years. And here's something I want you to grasp, all right? All of the New Testament was written in this 40-year period. All of it. Why is that significant? Because when you're reading the New Testament, and one of the writers says, this age, what age is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Old Covenant age. It didn't end at Pentecost. It didn't end until AD 70. This age, and then they talk about the age to come. Well, the age to come didn't come until after AD 70. Past AD 70, there's no more Old Covenant. That age was a Jewish age, Old Covenant age ended at 8070. It's done. From there on, we're in the New Covenant. The New Covenant has no last days because it is an everlasting covenant. From Pentecost to 8070 was the last days of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was ending. And during this transition period, the church was growing. It started out in infancy. And it began to grow. And it grew into maturity. Yahweh worked in the growing church through the miraculous gifts that He empowered His disciples to do. A spiritual house was being built during this time for Yahweh to dwell in. It was a time of change. It was a time of growth. A time of transformation from the old to the new. The old things of Judaism, the old covenant, were fading away. We see that. They're getting smaller and smaller as you go through the 40 years. The new covenant was growing. The ages were in a process of changing. But it didn't change at one point in time. It changed in a transition from old to new. Look at Hebrews 8.13. And speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one, that's the first covenant, the old covenant, obsolete. Now watch. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's becoming, it's not gone yet, it's becoming obsolete. The writer of Hebrews wrote this in AD 65, so as as late as AD 65, the old covenant's still functioning, but it's growing old. It had not yet become obsolete, but it was ready. Just a few more years and it was going to vanish. The old covenant was fading away. And that's what we see there in the green. It's just getting smaller and smaller. But the New Covenant, the church is growing to maturity. Look at Ephesians 2.22. In Him, you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church is being built for what? To be a dwelling place. The process was happening in the transition. They were being built for, to be a dwelling place for God. But listen, the clear blessing of the New Covenant was that God would dwell with His people. Man's access to God did not take place until the Old Covenant was put away and the New Covenant had been consummated. That Old Covenant had to be destroyed. That temple where God dwelt was put away. He's now dwelling in the New Temple, the body of Christ. The disciples that Yeshua is talking to in our text lived in that transition period. They were about to be agents of change for the kingdom of God, for the emerging church. Now, 
let me stop here and say this. And please listen. I am not saying that prayer is not for today. I, I, somebody's going to just, I know it. Somebody's going to, oh, he says he doesn't believe in prayer. I'm not saying that, okay? I pray every day. We pray as a church in the morning before this service. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying I believe these specific verses were for the first century saints. All right? Now, with that in mind, let's look at these promises. This verse has provoked considerable discussion in the history of Christianity. You can understand that, right? You can understand. He says, whoever believes in me. To believe in him is to believe and to embrace all he has been teaching about himself. And listen, in the context of what we see in this chapter, it's to believe that he is Yahweh. He's just been stressing that. And then he says, whoever believes in me, believes what? What I've been just teaching you, the Father and I are one. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, the word works here is used here in verse 11. It's the Greek word ergon, which is used specifically of his miracles in this book. The works are his miracles. Yeshua's miracles were signs that signified who he was. We saw this at the very first miracle in John 2.11. This, the first of his signs. You know what it's talking about here? He turned the water into wine. Took water and made wine. Man, that would be a great gift for the church today, okay? <clears throat> Yeshua did it Canaan and Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. He manifests who he was. Listen! He's God. He's creating something here. They believed in Him because of the miracle that they had seen take place. He says, the works that I do. Now the phrase in verse 12, the works that I do, occurs only one other place in the New Testament, and that's in John 10.25. Yeshua answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, you see what I'm doing. You see the miracles. The, the works in 1025 are exactly the same as in John 11. I mean, John 14 here. My works, my miracles are the things that show you that I'm God incarnate. Now, while the disciples no doubt struggled with the idea that their ministries were about to end if He's leaving them, Christ is encouraging them with this promise. Listen, guys. Whoever believes in Me, you think it's over? You think because I'm leaving, that's the end? Our whole, all our hopes for Israel have died. All this has gone away. No. Whoever believes in me, they're going to do the things I do and greater works than this. And they're like, what? We're going to carry on and do greater works than you? Greater works than these will he do. Now, boy, you want to hear some different interpretations on this, okay? Well, the weight of the lexical evidence shows that the word greater favors the idea of greater in scope, greater in proportion, Portion, greater in intensity, greater in impact. Their works will be greater. Why? Because He's going to the Father. Now, hopefully by now you understand, when He says, I'm going to the Father, what does He mean? What's the first thing that happens to go to the Father? The cross. I'm going to the Father. That's the cross. i got to die first. got to be resurrected. Then I will be ascended. And guess what? When I get to the heaven, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell every believer. That's why, that's why I'm going to the Father, so you can do greater works, because the Spirit's going to come. You're going to have divine enablement to carry on my work as no one's previously done. Now, when we examine the early chapters of Acts, we find that from a numerical perspective, the works of Peter and the other apostles surpassed what the Lord Yeshua did on the very first day of Pentecost. The very first day they did greater works. And the message went forth not just in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, but to the furthest part of the known world. The church thoroughly permeated the Roman Empire during the apostolic age. Whereas Yeshua's personal ministry didn't extend beyond Palestine. It seems that this is what Yeshua meant by greater works. Not more spectacular miracles, but just the amount, the the, the impact of what you're doing is going to be great. Then he says this. Okay, you guys are going to do great ministry. You're going to have supernatural power. You're going to do greater things than I did. Then he says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, this promise is, these promises are another that have been widely misinterpreted by the church. And, and I have to ask you, as you read this, does it describe your prayer life? Whatever you ask Yeshua, does He do? Sometimes you better be thankful that, for that, okay? Ever heard that country song? I think it was Garth Brooks, I thank God for unanswered prayer. I do, because a lot of things I prayed for in the past, I'm like, what was I thinking? Well, it's not true in your life, the reason you can pray prayers and they're not being answered, but the promise says they will be answered is because this promise is not to you. There's a lot of promises in the Bible that aren't to you. Have you ever heard someone say, every promise in the book is mine? That's not true at all. You know, people read, you know, Joshua and they read all these different promises. Yeah, they claim that promise. It's not for you. To the Israelites, thousands of years ago. Does it apply to you? Well, there might be a way to apply that, but first you've got to understand what it meant to them. This is a promise from Yeshua, and it's to His disciples who are going to bring the church. They're going to be involved in ministry, bringing the church from infancy to maturity. Now, the Greek text here, you can't see it in English, but it begins with the conjunction chi. And conjunctions show that the themes have not been changed, but he's enlarging upon the idea. So in light of this, we see our Lord giving a promises of the expanse of Christian ministry. And then he adds the provision for Christian ministry in prayer. You're going to do greater works, and just to help you out, anything you ask, I'll be there to get, get you, help you out. I'm there. You're not going to see me, but when you pray, I'll be there to answer those prayers. I'm going to empower you for ministry. And we see similar statements in the rest of this discourse that we'll look at when we get there. Now, did you notice there's a condition here? In my name. So what this means is you can ask for anything you want. Lord, I'd like a new Mercedes G-Wagon. I want a house on the ocean front. And then you watch. In order to get it, you just do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Magical formula. And poof! It all popped. People, ah, We've reduced Christianity to to just nonsense, you know? Because we don't understand it. We just make up our own understanding. This is not a magic, get every prayer you ask for answered formula. In the Bible, a person's name equals all that person is and does. It refers to character. The name of Yeshua refers to the character of Yeshua. It's linked to His character. Thus, to pray in Yeshua's name is to seek His will and submit to His authority. When Christ said pray in His name, He's saying pray prayers that are consistent with who I am. Pray prayers that are consistent with my will, my purpose. That's what it means to pray in His name. Not tack a phrase on the end of your prayer. Augustine taught, again, Augustine agrees with me, Augustine taught that to pray in Jesus' name means that the prayer must be consistent with Christ's character. That's what it means to pray in a name. I'm lining up with His character. Now, I look at these verses and I'm scratching my head earlier in the week saying, geez, I don't see this. So I'm looking through everybody I can get, you know, and everybody just, they're basically glossing over this. They're basically saying, yes, all Christians, get all your prayers answered, you just got to say the right things and they'll all happen. Charles Ross, he tries to explain these verses in a little little book called The Inner Sanctuary. He writes this, To ask in the name of another is, in ordinary language, to ask as drawing upon his resources, and as if you were one with him. That other is supposed to have, by position or by service rendered, a right and title to what is asked for. And he who asks in his name does so, as being one with him, and is drawing on his resources. And in like manner, to ask in the name of Jesus is to ask as being one with him. It is to renounce all merit of your own. It is to ask as one depending entirely on another for his divine resources. Okay? So, I would agree with that. Okay, if you're going to pray, you're not praying in your own merit. Lord, I want this because I'm a special person. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I keep all your commandments, so therefore give me this. No, you're praying, Lord, because of who you are, would you give me this, all right? Well, Brown offers this summary. He says, Johannian theology 
as introduced into prayer in Jesus' name, an emphasis that goes beyond the use of a formula. Okay, I think we all get that, right? A Christian prays in Jesus' name in the sense that he is in union with Jesus. Thus, the theme of asking in my name in 14, 13, and 14 continues and develops the indwelling Moffat. All right, we just talked about, he's saying, I'm in the Father, Father's in me, this whole indwelling thing. So he's continuing that, it hasn't ended. The indwelling Moffat, a Christian prays in Jesus' name in the sense that he's in union. People, that's kind of redundant because every Christian is in union with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're in union with him. All right? He says, because the Christian is in union with Jesus and Jesus is in union with the Father, there can be no doubt the Christian's request will be granted. Okay, first of all, all Christians are in union. That's what it means to be a Christian. You have joined with Christ. You are in union with Christ. All that He is and has, you are and have. So, He's saying that if you're a Christian, your prayers will be answered. So, He's just saying what the text says, right? But I'm thinking, do you pray, buddy? All your prayers answered? J.C. Ryle put it this way. The things we ask for are for our soul's good and not our mere temporal benefits. So his take on it is, we've got to ask for spiritual things, not fleshly things. Alright, so according to these men that we looked at, when we pray, we must pray asking as being one with Him, which is to renounce all merit of our own. Got no problem with that. It's to ask as one depending entirely upon His divine resources. Got no problem with that. And it's to be in union with the Father. Got no problem with that. And we ask for things that are for our soul's good. I agree, we should pray more about spiritual things, not physical things. But the predominant thing at prayer meeting is physical, physical, physical. And according to these guys, if we do this, all our prayers will be answered. Well, I can say that at times, I honestly pray this way. I mean, I pray for things that I think are according to Yeshua's character. What I know about it. Renouncing all merit of my own. I'm, I don't think I have any merit when I come before God in prayer. And I'm in union with Christ because I'm a believer. I am in union. But for the, to be honest, most of my prayers are not answered. So, I pray almost daily. Let me give you an example of most of my prayers not being answered. All right? I pray almost daily, and I mean almost every day. I pray that I would be able to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That's just a prayer of mine. I think that's important. Now let me ask you this. Is that prayer in accord with Christ's desire and His will? According to the Scripture it is. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. That would have been enough. He could have stopped there. But here, let, me give, let me tell you how to love her. Love her as Christ loved the church, and gave Himself up for her. To the point of total sacrifice. That's how you love her. So, when I pray this, I pray that what I am commanded to do, I would be empowered to do. And let me tell you something. My wife will give testimony to this. I fail miserably at this a lot of times. I just do. Why aren't my prayers being answered? I mean, that's, that's a biblical prayer. I'm not asking for things. I'm just asking that I would fulfill what God has told me to do. All right, John Piper further complicates the matter writing on these verses. He says, In these words of Jesus in John 14, 12-14, bear directly on your life. They're for you. All right? I'd be saying, well, they're not working. What they say is that all of us who believe in Jesus will carry on His work and in some wonderful way do something greater than the works of Jesus. Well, again, in context, the works are miraculous. And I don't see anybody doing these things. All right? Piper goes on to say, it is a promise to all believers. Oh, he also says this, the text says, whoever believes in me, believers, pure and simple, will do the works I do. You know, if I didn't know better, what Piper said here would cause me to question my salvation. It just would, if I'm honest. He's saying all believers do this, and I'm saying I don't. So am I not a believer? This promise of doing greater works, this promise of answer prayer is not true in my life. It's not being manifest. 
When Betty Sue Hill went into the hospital, she had to go. It wasn't elective surgery. Her heart valve was failing so bad, she was passing out. She wasn't able to hardly take a couple steps anymore. They said, we've got to do surgery. And knowing the surgery was coming, I cried out to God for her. The day of the surgery, I was on my face before God watching the clock. I knew what time the surgery started. I'm crying out to God, praying for her. Lord, give the doctors wisdom, strengthen Betty Sue, get her through this surgery, get her back to health. Glenn called me finally and said, the surgery went well, Betty Sue's in recovery. So I'm like, thank you, Lord. I'm just rejoicing in God. An hour later, Glenn called me back. He called me in tears. I could barely understand him. Betty Sue's in trouble. Please pray. That was it. So for the next couple hours, I'm not really sure how long it was, I was praying harder people than I've ever prayed in my life. I was begging God. I was calling out to God. I was doing everything I knew. I had my granddaughter for some reason that day, and so we went to the... My mom was in a rehabilitation facility, so we went there to visit her. And while I was there, Glenn called me. And again, I could barely understand what he's saying, but he said, Betty Sue died. I'm standing in the hallway of this nursing home, bawling like a baby. My granddaughter's looking at me like, Grandpa, what's going on? What's happening? You know, what's happening with you? I wasn't praying for myself. I was praying for this godly woman who loved the Lord, and I was praying for Glenn. She was his helpmate, and the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. So I thought, this is a biblical prayer. I prayed that Glenn wouldn't be alone. My prayers were not answered. That's because these promises are not for us. Listen, people, you've got to face either these promises aren't for us or something is wrong with the Word of God. Because it says this and we're not seeing it. Okay, so how do we reconcile that? Now, people will say, and I've talked to several believers about this, asking them, what do you read these verses? What do they say to you? They try to rationalize these verses. They just do. Like, well, it means you don't understand. You know, once someone says, well, it means that you, whenever you pray, you always have to pray for God's will to be done. It always is done. I'm a Calvinist. His will is always done. Why do I need to pray for that? But our text in John says, whatever you ask, ask anything. People, we need to understand these promises of answered prayer in context of what Yeshua had already spoken. He made great promises about the work of ministry through the disciples. They would naturally have fears and reservations about this work. They're scared. Uh, What? We're going to carry on your work? So he gives them a critical key to carrying on their God-given task. Guys, if you ask anything in my name, I'm there to be with you. I'm going to get it done. So I see these promises made to first century disciples who he is about to leave. It is for their work during the transition period. All right. So... Again, understanding not all Scripture is written to us, but it's written for us. Now, just to make sure you understand that I'm not saying I don't believe in prayer. There's other, a lot of other promises in Scripture about prayer. These are specific. To me, the best definition of prayer is this. Prayer is a declaration of dependence. And if you get this, it will change your prayer life. What do I mean by that? When you pray, what are you saying? God, I need you. That's why I'm coming to you. I need you. I need help here, God. I can't do this on my own. you got to help me. you got to give me something. Give me the strength to get through this. And people saying this, praying is an act of humility. Because you're saying, I need your help. And the Bible says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So you're in a great position when you're really praying. But the other side of this is this. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence. Now We like the declaration of independence, but not when it's from God. Okay? It's okay if it's from Britain, but it's not okay when we're saying, we're independent from God. No, when you don't pray, that's what you're saying. That statement there changed my prayer life. Years and years ago, I was reading a magazine, and I read that in there, and I was it like it struck me to the core. 
Because it's saying when you don't pray, you're declaring your independence from God. You're saying, God, I don't need you. Watch me. I got this. That's why we don't pray. So that should help revolutionize your prayer life. All your prayers are not going to be answered. Like I said, some of our prayers, we're thankful later that they're not answered. Because we don't know what we need. God does. Now at this stage in my life, most of my prayers, I find, are prayers of thanksgiving. I mean, I'm just thanking Him. I'm constantly thanking Him for always giving. I look at my life and I think, I don't know how it could be better. And I'm just saying, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for this. And when I come to pray for somebody, because I do, I pray for my family, I pray for others. But here's my prayer. If someone comes to, well, so-and-so is sick, pray for them. Or so-and-so is going through a very difficult time, pray for them. My prayer is, Lord, use this in their life to manifest yourself in their life. Use this in their life to draw them to you. That's a biblical prayer, right? I'm not saying fix them. If God wanted them fixed, maybe He wouldn't have broke them in the first place. But he's, he's using everything in our life to draw us to Himself. And it's through the times of difficulty that we really find out the relationship we have. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I want to close with one thing here. Notice who He says to pray to. Who are we praying to here? If you ask me, have you heard people say, you should always pray, there's a formula, always pray to the Father, alright? You always pray in Yeshua's name, but you pray to the Father in Yeshua's name. Well, here we see direct prayer, Yeshua Himself is saying, if you ask me anything, in my name I'll do it. And this isn't just Him, this is exactly what we see in Stephen's life. Stephen prays in 759, Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. Getting ahead of myself. And in Revelation 22.20, the prayer is, Come, Lord Yeshua. So I don't think we have to have, you know, we got to get the formula right. That's not what it's about, people. It's about a heart attitude. Okay? It's a heart attitude. You go to God because you realize you need Him. You go to God because you realize everything I have is a gift from His hand. So we pray. And our prayer should be loaded with thanksgiving. And if it's not, you need to stop and take count of where you are and who you are. Because if you're living in this country, man, the list is endless, okay? There's people in third world countries begging God for what we take for granted. All right, let me close with this. Please, please, please do not believe what I'm saying here without studying it out. I'm not asking you to believe what I'm telling you about these verses. I'm asking you to be a Berean and dig into this and look at this and figure it out for yourself. You don't have to agree with me. I'm, this is how I see it. I can't see it any other way. If you do, help me out. Because I don't see these happening in my life, so it's hard for me to take them as promises when they're not true. But I understand that some verses were directed to individuals at that time specifically for them. Can we apply things? Yeah, I don't know how we can apply these. Other than we know the Lord's with us and when we pray, He hears our prayers. doesn't always give us what we ask, but for some reason He told them, you just ask and I'm going to make sure it's happening. There was a very important job going on by these people. All right. So bottom line, here it is, people. Be a Berean. Okay? Study this out. I hope I never hear somebody say, well, I believe this because Dave said this. No, that's not the right answer. Okay? I believe this because I studied it out. Or I don't believe this because I studied it out. We come to conclusions without research. We hear something, we go, oh, I reject that. I don't like it. Don't research it. Or I accept that. Just, why? I don't know. It just sounds good. He did the research. I'll believe him. <laughs> no. Don't accept. Don't reject. Study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, it's a difficult text to me, Lord, because I, I hate to tell people that certain verses are not to them. That grieves my soul, but I just believe that it's true, and I believe we have to interpret Scripture correctly. And if we don't, this could cause so much damage as Christians wonder why you're not fulfilling your promises in their life. Teach us, Lord, from your Word. May we truly be Bereans and only desire your truth. Thank you, Lord.
Amen.